We are wrapping up our sermon series called The Four Most Important Words. I'm sorry, you're forgiven. When we've been wronged, when we've been hurt, when someone has taken advantage of us, when we were the innocent victim, that's not easy. What do you do with the people who, who come to you and say, I'm sorry, but you know good and well they're not sorry? Or maybe they're not around to say, I'm sorry. Or, or, or maybe, maybe, maybe they're dead and gone. You can't hear them say, I'm sorry, and you can't tell them you're forgiven, even if you wanted to. What then? Well, here's, here's where we're headed this morning. We're going to look at, at two guys from the Old Testament and two ladies from the New Testament that are going to help us. But I'll tell you what the end is. I'm not supposed to tell you the ending, but I'll tell you the ending. The ending is, you can overcome the most difficult circumstances in your life through Jesus Christ. You can overcome it. And you can discover that there is beauty in forgiveness. Alright, two guys from the Old Testament, two ladies from the New Testament. The first guy in the Old Testament... Uh, you, here's your Old Testament. I'll give you your Old Testament history lesson in 30 seconds, hopefully. After King Solomon was king, the nation of Israel split into two. They had a civil war of sorts and split into two, and Israel was to the north and Judah was to the south. Israel, the nation to the north, was, was terrible. They had terrible king after terrible king after terrible king, and eventually was destroyed by, by the nation of Assyria, the Assyrians. The nation to the south, Judah, where Jerusalem was, Judah had a few more better kings, but they mostly went against God as well, and eventually they would be destroyed by the Babylonians. Well, the guy that I want to talk to you about today was a king in Judah, the nation to the south. He was king when the Assyrians were defeating the nation to the north. Now, there was a Mount Rushmore, possibly, of the great kings of Israel and Judah. Most people would put on their Mount Rushmore, King David, of course. Many would put Solomon and Josiah. Josiah was a very good king. I, I contend to you that I wouldn't put Solomon, because if you know your, your Bible, Solomon may have been the wisest man in the world when he began, but he was a dummy when it ended. And he did completely bad. He went against God over and over and over again. So I wouldn't put Solomon on my Mount Rushmore. I'd put the guy we're going to talk about today in 2 Kings chapter 17, uh, a guy by the name of Hezekiah. Let me read this passage to you. In the third year of Hosea, who is the son of Elah, king of Israel, remember the nation to the north, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to his reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, he smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. And, he, and from up until that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands of the Lord had given to Moses. And the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. See why he should be on Mount Rushmore? This is a great king. See all those things that that, that passage says. He held fast to the Lord. He didn't stop following him. He kept the commands. He's a great king. In fact, he, he was so, so great, you would might think, well, I can tell you why. Obviously, he had a great upbringing. Train up the child the way he should go. Isn't that what the proverb says? He must have had great parents. They had him in Sunday school. They had him in youth group. He was at the, you know, the camel car washes for fundraisers. He did all those things. That's why he turned out to be such a great king. Obviously, 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 great parents made a great king. 
you would be absolutely wrong. His dad, the guy we just mentioned, Ahaz, if Hezekiah was one of the greatest kings in Israel's history, Ahaz may have been, between Israel and Judah both, may have been the absolute worst king. In fact, the worst king in all the Bible, Ahaz, Hezekiah's dad. How bad was Ahaz? Well, I'll read it to you. 2 Kings 16 says this. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned Jerusalem for 16 years. Unlike David his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel. I told you, all the kings in Israel, practically all of them were terrible, terrible, terrible. And he even sacrificed his son in the fire. Child sacrifice is what we're talking Engaging in the detestable practices of the nation the Lord had driven out before Israel. He offered sacrifices, burned incense at the high places, in the hilltops, and under every spreading tree. Ahaz was terrible. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Participating in child sacrifices. You know, we, we are pro-life around here. God, oh, you want to rile up God's anger? Participate in the death of unborn. That's what's going on here. And, and, and Ahaz was horrible. The worst. No one worser than Ahaz. But his son has Hezekiah. Hezekiah was kind of like, the, think of him as the Elliot Ness or Batman cleaning up Gotham City. He was on a mission to clean up the nation of Judah from all those pagan things that his father had introduced again. And so he, he, he clean up project number one was the temple. He got rid of all the, the, the pagan things that had been put into the temple of God. He even got rid of the bronze snake. Did you hear that? The bronze snake that Moses had made, people started to worship that bronze snake. Moses made it just as a commemorative thing, and people started worshiping the snake. They even named it. He, he said, I don't care if Moses made it. We're getting rid of it. He cleaned up the temple. He started cleaning up in the countryside every place where there were Asherah poles or pagan symbols or anything at all. He got rid of it. And he focused the military once again to look to God Almighty. He saw what was going on up in Israel, the nation to the north. They had turned their backs on God repeatedly over and over and over again, and the Assyrians were wiping them out. And so he turned the military and said, man, we've got to get things together. You see, what was going on is those Assyrians, the people up north, they were looking at Israel, which was larger, had a bigger military, stronger. They said, man, we just wiped out Israel. Judah's next. And Hezekiah saw that. And, saw, and they started coming. And they started taking a few cities in Judah, and Jerusalem was next. And what did Hezekiah do? He got on his knees and he called out to God. And God in his mercy came and spared the nation of Judah from the Assyrians, and they pushed them back and held them off. It was Hezekiah. Well, Pastor, this is a wonderful history lesson. What in the world does this have to do with, I'm sorry, you're forgiven? I'm glad you asked. Here's my contention. I don't know what your history is. I don't know what that big rock is that you've been carrying, what that bag of rocks contains. But I know this. There is, you could make the case, there is no one in Scripture who had a worse father than Hezekiah. His dad was participating in child sacrifice for crying out loud. 
that was where he was raised. That was the example that was before him. You, you don't think that if your dad is so pagan, 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 that, that, that it would influence you or have some, some memories or some horrific events in your life? And that's Hezekiah. What's the big point from the big point from Hezekiah is you can have the worst of circumstances and you can't overcome it. He had the worst dad, became one of the greatest kings. You can overcome those things. You can overcome those bad things. You can overcome those bad memories. How? Here's something crazy, something interesting. You know how in the Old Testament, frequently, people would be named for a reason. Their names were uh, chosen for a purpose, a message. You know, when we named Alex and Ben, we just, you know, we thought we were going to have 26 kids. Started with A, Alex, B, Ben, and then said, forget that plan. Oh, there was no, you know, there's no Alex or Ben in our family. We just like the names, but not in the Old Testament. Old Testament names were meaningful. And guess what? Pagan, pagan, pagan dad Ahaz and his and his mom uh, Abijah. What did they name Hezekiah? What does Hezekiah mean? You know what it means? It means the Lord strengthens. They had no idea how important that name was going to be. The Lord strengthens. How do you overcome your pagan, pagan parents? The Lord strengthens. How do you overcome all those terrible things that have happened in your past? The Lord strengthens. How do you overcome when battles come, the Assyrians are moving in? The Lord strengthens. How do you overcome your circumstance, your situations, your bad things, your rocks, your bags of garbage that you've had to load, carry around? The Lord strengthens. Pastor, but you don't understand. I could never, how in the world could I ever, I don't think I can do it. You're right. On your own, you can't do it. On your own, you can't come to a place where, where just out of your own uh, will, just muster up the forgiveness of some of the things that have happened. But the Lord strengthens. It's not you on your own. It's God coming alongside you. What's the verse we say from Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That verse doesn't mean you can leap over the, the, the Empire State Building. It doesn't mean that you can, you know, outrun some, some Olympic star. What it means is that God can strengthen you and enable you to overcome some of those things that have happened, some of those circumstances in your life, some of those things that you could, I could never forgive. I will never say I'm sorry. <laughs> On your own, maybe that's true. But when the Lord is strengthening you, I can do all things through Christ Amen. who gives me strength. That's the point of, of that. You know, in Hezekiah's life, one last thing. You know, his dad, Ahaz, died. And he never saw the man that Hezekiah became. He couldn't, he couldn't uh, uh, see, oh wow, look at what Hezekiah, He's, he was dead. So even if, even if Ahaz had come to a point where he wanted to say, I'm sorry, he couldn't. And even if Hezekiah wanted to say, you're forgiven to his dad, he couldn't. And what happens when we can't say, I'm sorry, or you're forgiven to someone, either the, because of distance, or because of death, or because of whatever reason that may be? Yes, and the point is, it's the same biblical principle that's at work here. The Lord strengthens who? You. The Lord strengthens you. The Lord strengthens you to what? To overcome these things. The Lord strengthens you to overcome no matter what is going on with this other person. I think that's a big point here. You see, see when, when we're carrying around that sack, when we're burdened by those past memories, when we, when we don't forgive or when we pridefully can't say, I'm sorry, 
The Lord will strengthen us. The Lord will enable us. On our own, we can't do it, but we can trust, even in the midst of those things, that we can let go of those burdens. The only one that's hurt when we carry those bags with us, it's not the other person. It's not the one that maybe is in the grave. It's not the one who refuses to say I'm sorry or says I'm sorry and doesn't really mean it. When we carry around those grudges, that bitterness, that anger, who's hurt by all that? It's not them, it's us. Hezekiah's point, the point of his life, the example of his life, you can overcome, the Lord strengthens, and forgiveness is a beautiful thing. He went on to become Mount Rushmore, Hezekiah. God can do great things in your life if you allow it. All right, that's the first guy. The second guy that I wanted to look at in the Old Testament that I think will help us with this whole notion of, of I'm sorry, you're forgiven, is another, you know this guy very, very well. He's probably the prime example of someone who has been knocked down, knocked down, knocked down, knocked down, and, and was able to overcome in a beautiful way. It's the guy Joseph. Remember Joseph in the Old Testament, Joseph in the, in the Technicolor dream coat, Joseph, that guy. That guy whose brothers hated him because he was a spoiled brat. That guy whose brothers hated him, who tossed him in a pit, who sold him into slavery, who became the slave of Potiphar, who rose up in Potiphar's ranks, became the highest slave, whose wife then, then tried to seduce him, and he said no, and she falsely acclaimed that, that he, he uh, 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 you know, raped her or something, landed in prison started a little micro-business of interpreting dreams, and eventually the word got back to Pharaoh that there's a dude in prison that can interpret your dream because the Pharaoh had a dream. And his dream was that there was five fat, seven fat cows, not that he got a diamond necklace, there was seven fat cows and seven skinny cows, and the skinny cows ate the fat cows. What does that mean? And Joseph heard the story and he says, well, I'll tell you what it means. It means that there's, there's going to be a bull market and then there's going to be a bear market, and so invest wisely, grasshopper. And he says, I don't know about bulls and bears. I only had cows in my dream, but okay. And Joseph became the top dog in Egypt. And everything was going great. But back in his home country, things were going lousy because there was a famine going on, just as, as Joseph had interpreted those dreams. And so his family come to Egypt to get food. You remember that part of the story. And they show up, and they go before the great financier of Egypt, a guy by the name of Zephanath Paniah. And they saw Zephanath Paniah, Joseph. His name was changed. Pharaoh changed his name. They called him Zephanath Paniah, but it was Joseph. They didn't recognize that it's Joseph, but Joseph recognized that it's his brothers. And so what does Joseph do to these guys who tossed him in a pit and sold him into slavery? And he ended up landing in jail for several years. What does he do? You think he's not carrying around some bitterness, some anger? Well, he throws a banquet. And he feeds his one brother, Benjamin, five times more. Gives him five times more stuff. Benjamin was his true brother. He gives him five times more than the other brothers. While the banquet's going on, he, stuffs, uh, he has his servants stuff a silver cup in Benjamin's bag. They take off to head for home. And Joseph and his men charge after his brothers. Now, if I'm using my psychology degree that I got from Olivet Nazarene University, I'd say that Joseph is acting a little passive-aggressive at this point. Because they chase after him. Of course, his brothers don't know that it's Joseph. His brothers don't know that, his, that, that Benjamin has this silver cup in his bags. And they catch up to him and they say, Hey, 
You took something from us. We didn't take anything. They looked through the stuff. Of course, they planted the silver cup in Benjamin's bag. They found it. And Joseph says to his brothers, all right, you all can go home, but this kid stays here. We don't, we don't take kindly to thieves in these parts. Now remember, at this point, Joseph had been the favorite of his dad. Remember? Multicolor, technicolor coat. When his dad thought Joseph was dead and gone, guess who became the favorite? Oh, Benny Bob. And now they're looking at Benny Bob and they see that silver cup and those brothers have a choice to make. They don't know that he stole it or didn't steal it. Maybe they're thinking he did steal it. Maybe they think spoiled brat thinks he can do anything. He got five times at the dinner and now he's stealing a cup. Let's leave him here to die and we'll take care of a problem just like we took care of Joseph when he was a problem. Now, if you've read the book of Genesis, you know it is dysfunctional family after dysfunctional family. It begins with Adam and Eve, and throughout the entire book, up until this point, one dysfunctional family after another. They are not perfect people. They are far from perfect people. And we get to this point, and Joseph's brothers are looking at Benjamin with the silver cup. They could go home and say, sorry, Dad. Man, oh man, you wouldn't believe what Benjamin did. He stole a silver cup, and they made him stay. And the entire book of Genesis reaches this point when Judah, the same brother that, that said, let's sell Joseph into slavery, Judah, steps up and this is what he says. Sir, speaking to Joseph, again, he doesn't know it's his brother. Sir, our father reminded us that his favorite wife had given birth to two sons. One of them is already missing. <laughs> it's Joseph and has not been seen for a long time. My father thinks the boy was torn into pieces by some wild animal. Wonder where he got that idea. They told him that. And he said, I'm an old man. If you take Benjamin from me and something happens to him, I will die of a broken heart. That's why Benjamin must be with us when I go back to my father. He loves us so much that he will die if Benjamin doesn't come back with me. I promised my father that I would bring him safely home. And if I don't, I told my, my father he could blame me for the rest of my life. Sir, I am your slave. Let me stay here in place of Benjamin and let him return home with his brothers. How can I face my father? If the sound system went crazy, if Benjamin isn't with me, I couldn't bear to see my father in such sorrow. For the first time in the Bible, the very first time, right here, someone is saying, Something that's not selfish or self-centered or looking out for their own back. Here Judah steps up and says, let me be a substitute. I'll substitute for Benjamin. Don't hurt Benjamin, let me. It's, it's a foretaste of what's going to happen with Jesus, right? Someone stepping up and saying, I'm the substitute for them all. Judah, Judah, Judah is now doing that. And when Joseph sees what his brother has done, when his brother responds far different to him, when Joseph sees that his brothers have been transformed and changed, he ends the charade and he tells them that he's Joseph and he embraces them and he hugs them and he starts out crying so loud that they hear it far beyond the thick walls of the palace. It's the beauty of forgiveness, don't you see? Joseph had every reason to be bitter and angry and he thought, they're going to do it again to my kid brother Benjamin. 
But when he saw how they responded so differently, he put an end to it and, and, and he embraced them. And Joseph continued that, that care and that love. It's the beauty of forgiveness. Bitterness and anger and rage inside of us for things that have gone down, it only hurts us. My guess is we say, well, they, they don't deserve it, Pastor. You don't know what they did to me. They don't deserve me to forgive me. You're probably right. I didn't deserve God's love for me either. You didn't deserve it. Joseph's brothers didn't deserve it. The problem is, bitterness is a joy thief. It steals our joy. When we carry around that big old bag of hurts and worries, it does it hurts us. Oh, pastor, if I, if I forgive them, it lets them off the hook. They did this to me and it lets them, no, it lets you off the hook. You've been carrying the burden, not them. You've been carrying that weight, not them. It lets you off the hook. It lets you live again. It lets you breathe again. It lets you experience joy once more. That's the beauty of forgiveness. It's seeing how in Joseph's life you can overcome those terrible circumstances. You can experience the beauty of forgiveness. Oh my. I wanted to get to the two ladies in the New Testament. There's two ladies in the New Testament. We don't know their story like we know Hezekiah and Joseph's story. We don't know exactly who needs to say I'm sorry and who needs to see, say you're forgiven. Maybe both need to say both. I don't know. Your story is in Philippians. You remember the Philippian church in Acts 16. It tells us about this church. It's a power. It's an awesome church. Paul loved this church. In fact, the case could be made that this is Paul's favorite, favorite, favorite church. There was. It's a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. There's the rich people, Lydia. There's very, very poor people, the slave girl. There's people in the middle, the, the Roman guard. There are people from different ethnic backgrounds and languages and, and people groups and all this. They all come together to form this one body in Philippi. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of the church. And Paul loves them. I mean, it's his If you read the book of Philippians, it's constantly talking about joy, 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 joy. Well... Many Bible scholars think that the whole reason for that letter, that Philippian letter, is these two ladies. He spends four chapters, but really it's four verses in the book is why he wrote the book of Philippians. And in Philippians chapter 4, you can read what Paul writes to them. He says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of the followers, work, fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Paul is saying, listen, ladies, you've been by my side. We've been working together. And now there's a problem between you two. And, and, and you've got to get this figured out. You've got you've to get the joy of the Lord back in your heart. Why? Well, because the Lord is near. Hey, ladies, did you hear me? I said rejoice. In fact, now say it again, rejoice. Don't let this garbage pull you down. Don't let this, this, this contention destroy what God is doing in my favorite church. No, rejoice, rejoice. The Lord is near. We don't know how much time we got. The Lord is near. Don't carry this baggage anymore. The Lord is near. 
Well, this week, this week I received uh, an anonymous card. Oh, pastors love receiving anonymous notes. <laughs> usually, usually it's, you know, pastor, blah, 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 you know, you preach too long, you preach too short, you said that, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> oh, I love getting them. Um, typically, I, this, is, this, is my, this is my rule of thumb. Generally, if you send an anonymous note, if you're not brave enough to write your name, I'm not brave enough to read whatever garbage you put in the letter. <laughs> so usually it just goes right in the trash. I got an anonymous card, not a, not a letter, a card. It's right here. With someone in church last Sunday. And this, this person, the lady, sent me this card that she hand drew. And on the top, top of the card, it says, My rock, my story. And then there's this lady down here carrying this huge rock. It's bigger than herself. You see it? It's huge. And inside the rock, there's a picture of two little girls. And this is what it says above the picture. My sister and I got sexually abused by my father. My sister didn't survive. You know what kind of rock she's carrying? I don't know who this is. I don't know how old she is. I don't know how long she's been at rock. I'd be carrying it too. You open up the card. The next page is just the rock. Big old rock. Same story. My sister and I got sexually abused by my father. My sister didn't survive. And then at the bottom of that page, she wrote the end. That's the end of that story. That's the end of that chapter. That's the end of that ugly history. Because you turn to the next page, and there's no more rock. But her arms are up in the air, and the sun is shining, and she's saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. She's discovering, and it's going to take more than one sermon or more than one day. I get it, but she's discovering the joy, the beauty of forgiveness, the joy of putting an end to those terrible stories and saying, with God, I can overcome. With Jesus on my side, there can be a new day. I can throw my arms up in the air, and the sun will come out, and I can trust Jesus. That's what this card is proclaiming. There's good news. You can overcome. There's beauty. There's beauty in forgiveness. It's just allowing God to work.